Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm your host, Kara Ong Whaley. In this episode, we share a forum we held on the causes and consequences of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with JMU faculty experts, Drs. Daniel Beers, Colleen Moore, John Holsey, and Bernie Kessler. Enjoy the episode. Daniel Beers, our first set of questions are to you. What do you want us to know about Ukraine and Ukrainians that mainstream media narratives of the Russian invasion are missing? And why has Ukraine been so successful at information warfare propaganda compared to Russia? Some identify uh, uh, as ethnically Russian. Many Ukrainians have family members and friends and, and other deep ties to Russia. Um, they, they do not seek conflict with Russia or to sever all ties with the Russian state or the Russian people. Um, so this kind of, uh, you know, very stark um, division that we're seeing uh, as a result of the invasion um, was not always that way. Um, but on the other hand, right, uh, it does not mean that the Ukrainian nation is a fiction, as uh, Putin has, has tried to claim. Um, it doesn't mean either that the majority of Ukrainians want to be liberated from the West and to rejoin Russia. Um, I would say quite the contrary. Ukrainians have repeatedly demonstrated their desire for an independent, autonomous Ukrainian state. Um, if we go back to the to the breakup of the Soviet Union, over 90 percent of Ukrainian citizens voted for independence from the USSR in 1991, with majorities in every region, including the Crimean Peninsula. Um, We've seen repeated mass mobilizations uh, in 2004 for the Orange Revolution and 2014 with the Revolution of Dignity or the Euromaidan as it's known. Uh, and now in response to the Russian invasion, um, which uh, you know, have, have really um, demonstrated the Ukrainian people's uh, desire for independence um, and a closer alliance with the West. Um, and over the last eight years, since the annexation of Crimea and the war in the Donbass and eastern Ukraine, there's been a hardening of public opinion among the Ukrainian population. And we're now seeing large majorities viewing Russia in a negative light, uh, viewing the Russian military as a threat and valuing the relationship uh, with the EU over Russia. And this is prior to the invasion that's just been happening in the last week. Daniel, I wonder if you could also speak to, just as we're opening up, I've seen a number of commentators saying that Ukraine is is winning the information war, as we, as so to speak, and I wonder if you could speak to why that may be the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, from my perspective, there's a, there's a clear sense in many many places, and I would say globally for the most part, um, that Russia is the clear aggressor in this conflict. Um, they've launched an unprovoked attack. They're trying to bully the Ukrainian people into submission, uh, and so you know this is sort of a. Um, uh, you know, we, we want to side with the with the um, with the Ukrainian people who are defending themselves from attack. Um, I also think, you know, watching and reading the news for the last week, there have just been incredible stories of of courage and character and creativity on the part of the Ukrainian people who are defending their territory in the face of over an overwhelming threat. Um, and so, I, I mean, I personally, I, I think that the um, the actions of the Ukrainian people are speaking for themselves, and, and that's what's winning the the narrative. 
Thank you so much, Daniel. Dr. Colleen Moore, in a speech that he gave on Monday, February 21st, a few days prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia President Vladimir Putin made several references to Russian and Ukrainian history, including a claim that modern Ukraine was completely created by the Bolsheviks. I wonder if you can explain what he meant by that statement and what role the history of those two nations plays in this conflict more generally. Yeah, sure. Um, thank you, everyone, for having me. I wish we were we were gathering under better circumstances, but I appreciate um, the opportunity to speak about this incredibly important event. Uh, Putin is attempting to use history to justify Russia's war in Ukraine, but he's oversimplifying and he's grossly distorting historical events. And only by looking at this history in all of its complexity can we understand what parts he's fabricating or misinterpreting. Um, as Daniel just mentioned, Putin has repeatedly said that Ukraine is not a separate nation, but it's just part of Russia or that Ukraine, Ukrainians and Russians are the same people. Russia and Ukraine both trace their origins to Kievan Rus, which is a state founded on the site of modern day Kiev in the ninth century. But Kievan Rus collapsed in the 12th century and the center of power shifted to Moscow, which became the capital of a new Russian state. This new Russian state later on incorporated parts of Ukraine um, beginning in the mid 17th century. So from then on until 1991, at least some portion of Ukraine and Russia belonged to the same country, Ukrainians, some Ukrainians and Russians were, were under the same ruler, but they developed as separate nations with distinct languages, literatures, cultures, and traditions beginning in the mid 19th century. So the Ukrainian nation predated Lenin and the Bolsheviks who came to power in 1917. Lenin and the Bolsheviks could not have created Ukraine. In fact, the Bolsheviks actually recognized the existence of Ukraine and of other nations of the former Russian empire by organizing the Soviet Union along national lines. Every member nation except the Russian nation had its own designated territory and its own party and state institutions. In this way, the Soviets fostered national identities alongside a supranational Soviet identity. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, it collapsed along national lines. The Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic became the independent nation state of Ukraine. But both the Soviet Republic and Ukraine today contain areas that were never under Russian rule. The Western part of Ukraine was ruled by the Habsburg Empire, until after World War I, and then mostly by Poland until after World War II. So the fact that a Ukrainian nation developed outside of and in time, at times in opposition to the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union undermines Putin's argument that Ukrainians are not a separate people and are the same as Russians. Finally, Putin has accused Ukraine of committing genocide and said that the Ukrainian government needs to undergo denazification. Um, I want to make very clear that there are no Nazis in the current government and no one in Ukraine is committing genocide. In fact, the vast majority of Ukrainians actually fought with the Soviet Red Army against the Nazis. And so to accuse them of, Nazi, of being Nazis and of committing genocide is an insult to the memory um, of those veterans. However, a Ukrainian nationalist named Stepan Bandera did fight with the Nazis against the Soviets in order to try and win Ukraine's independence from Soviet rule. And in the early 2000s, some right-wing Ukrainian groups tried to rehabilitate Bandera as a national hero. So Putin wants to remind Russians and ethnic Russians living in Ukraine of that. 
World War II was a formative experience for the Soviet Union. It occupies an enormously important place in Russian national culture, and to be a Nazi is the ultimate enemy. So by equating the current war in Ukraine with World War II, Putin is also trying to drum up popular support. And the allegation of Nazi is a not-so-subtle dig against Europe, which has always uh, considered itself as superior to Russia in terms of politics, economics, culture, but did give birth to fascism. So Putin has devised an incomplete and inaccurate version of history that, in his mind, justifies Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But in reality, this war actually has very little to do with the history of either Ukraine or Russia prior to 1991. Thank you, Colleen. And I think um, you've given us a really rich um, history, overview of history. Um, and I hope we can come back to some discussion um, in terms of uh, the role that empires have played. Um, and I don't know if, you, if you'd if you like to address that now, um, you're welcome to, or we could come back to it after, um, after hearing from some others. Um, but as we saw, um, you know, the uh, Martin Kimani, the Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations, um, explicitly linked the colonial history of his own country to that of Ukraine um, when he spoke before the Security Council last week. Um, and so I, I would love to hear your thoughts on um, the lessons for history of the Ukraine and other former Soviet republics in terms of colonialism and empire and how that's playing a role as, as this conflict unfolds. So I think the, the Kenyan ambassador's point was that um, sometimes the borders of nations are formed from without, right? And but we have to we have to respect these borders in order to event future wars. Um, and so all Ukrainians might not actually reside within the borders of contemporary Ukraine because when it was part of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, you obviously have movements of peoples. Um, and the Soviets and the Russians actually intentionally fostered these movements. They intentionally tried to put. Russians, ethnic Russians in Ukraine in order to kind of shore up the border, thinking that ethnic Russians might be more loyal to the Tsarist regime or the Soviet government. Um, and you likewise have Ukrainians who live outside of Ukraine. Um, and within Ukraine, you also have Germans and Poles and Jews and other peoples who are historically part of this landscape of Eastern Europe. Um, and I think another point that the ambassador raised and that it's important to remember is that all nations are invented. Right. Um, Benedict Anderson's kind of famous, famous book um, talks about they're all imagined communities, um, but we vest sovereignty in the nation right now. That's the current world order that we're living in. And so the nation that matters is the one whose borders were created and recognized with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Thank you so much. Um, Daniel, I wonder if we can come back to you. Can you give us a sense of Ukraine's perspective on its relationship with Russia and what has contributed to the tense relations between Russia and Ukraine leading up to the invasion, including Ukraine's possible membership in NATO and the EU, um, as well as the war in the Donbas, which you alluded to earlier? Sure, uh, I can try to do this. Um, so it's a, very, it's a very complicated relationship, of course. Um, and I mean, going back to this question of imperialism, you know, I, I just want to emphasize the point that the USSR, the Soviet Union, was an empire. And, um, you know, Ukraine was uh, incorporated into uh, this imperial system. Um, and, you know, for, for much of the history, uh, Moscow has subjugated the Ukrainian state in various ways, sometimes quite dramatically, um, as was the case with the man-made famine uh, in the 1930s, known as the Holodomor. 
um, where you know between three and five million Ukrainians perished um, at the same time that the Ukrainian state was exporting grain to other parts of the Soviet Union. Right, this was a, a crime against humanity that lives on in the Ukrainian psyche uh, and in the history of of the nation. Um, and but more often through other forms of coercion and imperial control. Um, you know, there's a uh, there's a monument in the center of Kiev um, called the uh, Friendship of Nations Arch. Right, it's a monument to the friendship of the Soviet socialist peoples. Um, and uh, you, you, many Ukrainians refer to this. It's a, it's an you know it's an arch, right? Like a rainbow shape. They refer to it as the bit, right? Which you put in the horse's mouth to keep it under control and to steer it in the direction you want to go. Um, so I mean, I think there's different narratives about that relationship, right? Between uh, between Russia and the Ukrainian people. Um, you know, but as I said, there are deep cultural, historical, and economic ties between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and I would say many Ukrainians, especially of the older generations, feel a natural kind of affinity towards Russia, or at least they have until now. Uh, you know, many still do. Um, but after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was a very complicated relationship. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned, there's been these kind of repeated inflection points. Um, the, the uprising over um, elections in 2004, known as the Orange Revolution, um, the, the uh, revolutionary movement or the uprising 10 years later uh, in 2014 um, over the decision of uh, Viktor Yanukovych to, to not to sign uh, an agreement with the European Union and move forward with relationship with, with the EU uh, and, and in the current invasion. And I think all of these have kind of come down to the same fundamental question of, um, you know, the, which uh, direction is Ukraine going to go? Is it going to ally itself more closely with Russia um, or is it going to move into closer relationship with, with the West? Um, you mentioned specifically NATO and the EU, so I'll, I'll try to um, address those briefly. Um, as, as far as NATO goes, right, this was um, a, a, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It was created um, as a military uh, alliance and bulwark against um, communism uh, and, and the spread of, of Soviet imperialism. Um, and it is seen in Russia as an inherent threat, uh, as, as a, you know, um, a, a bulwark, right, against um, Russian influence in the region. And when the Soviet Union collapsed uh, in the years uh, since then, there were negotiations to move the borders of NATO eastward, right, uh, somewhat dramatically, actually, into the countries of Eastern Europe um, that were behind the Iron Curtain, so to speak, not actually part of the Soviet Union, but but firmly in the grasp of, of Soviet uh, influence. Um, so countries like Poland and Hungary and um, you know, Czech Republic, Slovakia, et cetera. Um, and then actually an expansion of NATO into some former Soviet states in the Baltics, right? Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. So this meant that the, um, the security alliance, the military alliance that was protecting uh, Western you know, Europe against Soviet uh, threat was firmly, you know, directly on the border of Russia. Um, so when um, Ukraine has come up as a candidate state for uh, for NATO membership, as far back as 20, 2008, when it was uh, announced at a summit in Bucharest, um, Putin came out directly and said, this is our line in the sand. We don't accept this uh, expansion eastward to further towards the border with Russia. Um, and, you know, we've seen a similar story with the European Union. There was a um, historic enlargement of the EU in 2004, which um, uh, extended to many of the countries in Eastern Europe that we just mentioned, right behind the Iron Curtain, so to speak. Um, and, uh, and Ukraine has been a candidate state for EU membership for a couple decades now. Um, and it's been um, a, a difficult uh, accession process, right? I don't think many 
people saw that happening anytime soon, and, and many would have probably argued that neither NATO membership or EU membership, full membership for Ukraine was a likely possibility. Um, but the fact that those negotiations were happening and, uh, was seen as, um, you know, a, a challenge to Putin and to the influence of Russia in the region, in this region that they had historically had a very strong influence and um, in some cases direct military and political control. Thank you so much, Daniel. I want to continue, if we can, on this thread regarding uh, NATO and uh, the European Union um, and bring in Dr. John Holsey. Um, John, I wonder if you can talk about how the EU and NATO um, have have been responding to this current ev- invasion, um, but also what we may have seen leading up to it as well. Um, could they have done more to prevent this invasion? Um, and why or why not? Yeah, I, I think it's been, frankly, kind of shocking how aggressive, in particular, the European Union has been. That, you know, as as uh, Dr. Beers talked about, NATO is is a security organization. Uh, to a great extent, this is what NATO was built for, going back to its first construction. That it was it was constructed as a uh, as a counterbalance to. The Soviet Union, and of course Russia being the primary successor state of the Soviet Union, and and still now seen as a renewed threat to to Europe in a very securitized military way. So it's not so surprising then that NATO has been an important part of uh, the response of um, many European countries and the United States, as well as other NATO members. And we see that in uh, NATO doing what what NATO has done in the past, which is deploying troops and and building out cooperation in preparation for very concrete, very a very military kind of response. Um, along t- alongside that response, we've had NATO members providing weapons uh, directly to uh, directly to Ukraine. So, on the one side, the, the um, I think if we're talking about the uh, I think Dr. Beers talked well about um, the way in which. Um, Ukraine's approach to NATO, NATO's approach to Ukraine, as well as the EU, is a a big part of the story over the last two decades of um, kind of uncertainty about where Ukraine will be and conflict uh, between those who have different visions of uh, Eastern Europe and um, in particular Russian power and, um, let's say, uh, EU and NATO power, uh, but in in some sense, the once this has become a, a more clearly a security situation, it's not surprising uh, that NATO has responded in the way that it has. Um, what is more surprising is the way that the European Union has responded. Um, the European Union uh, also has its roots in the Cold War, uh, comes about uh, a bit later than NATO, but in this. Uh, you know, it's an organization built around economic cooperation, although economic cooperation that always had a geopolitical military side to it, where the earliest cooperation is on coal and steel, uh, but builds out into a broader customs union and then single market. Um, with the end of the Cold War, um, the EU expands into other areas. That's a process that it had already begun, but in the 90s, uh, a political union comes alongside uh, the economic union, including attempts to build a common foreign and security policy structure. However, uh, 
the EU foreign policy and especially the security policy uh, has always been underdeveloped relative to um, the rest of the European Union and in particular that security side that um, since the United States is outside of the European Union and since NATO already exists um, and serves a lot of the purposes that security cooperation might serve in the context of the European Union, um, it's been the perhaps the most underdeveloped part of um, the major goals of, of European integration in the context of the European Union. In addition, you know, if we're, we were anticipating uh, the kind of response we would expect from Europe, there are a lot of reasons to think that um, the EU would be slow to respond and perhaps ineffective to respond uh, in this kind of foreign policy and security realm. Um, many EU member states have complex relationships with Russia. Um, the focus of many EU member states, uh, Germany comes immediately to mind, has been to engage with Russia in a profitable economic way. Uh, they've avoided treating this relationship in a very kind of security focused way and have preferred a, um, a, a economic engagement. Uh, many German corporations have benefited from uh, the processes of liberalization in the former communist space and have built a significant um, economic empires there, right? We, should, we could say, or at least uh, economic influence and uh, profit sectors there. For example, Raiffeisen Bank, uh, which is uh, an Austrian bank that's uh, been around for a long time, a quarter of its profits come from Russia. So it's a uh, kind of massively invested in, in that direction. And kind of very visibly, we have uh, former German and Austrian officials, prime ministers, chancellors, um, on the boards of uh, major Russian corporations and lobbying intensively for um, what's seen as a kind of pro-Russia or at least a Russia-friendly um, approach. Um, alongside that, in terms of complex relationships, we have um, Viktor Orban in Hungary, who has uh, expressed an ideology that is in some ways uh, sounds like Putin, right? Or at least uh, a certain um, focus on nationalism and internal control, uh, certain kleptocratic and authoritarian tendencies in the way that it views the world. So echoes of Putin in uh, certain politicians uh, within the European Union. Um, you know, that, um, in addition to kind of the general weakness of the EU with regard to foreign policy and security policy, the requirement for consensus and decision-making in those areas within the European Union um, often mean that the, the EU is only of secondary importance on such matters. However, the primary response has been uh, economic, right? Which falls, you know, the, the sanctions in order for them to work and bite uh, have to involve the European Union, and we've seen this dramatic response where um, I, I, it seems to me that the depth, the speed and depth of sanctions is far beyond what many would have predicted. Um, Germany canceling Nord Stream 2 immediately, right? There was, there was no delay. There was no hemming and hawing. It was the seemingly immediate response to a large-scale invasion. Um, may have even been before we knew the invasion was large-scale. Um, uh, Germany, which normally doesn't send weapons to other countries, sending weapons to other countries, uh, 
not to call out Germany excessively, but a very important country uh, that has perhaps benefited from the security umbrella of the United States and has preferred not to have a large army committing to a significant increase in how much they're going to spend on defense. Um, so uh, this shows a kind of dramatic um, shift uh, within the EU uh, toward a rather decisive, um, wide-ranging response. Um, I think one question is what comes next, right? It seems like there's this wave of wave of response that it's, well, how far does it go? And, and does it, is it actually part of a strategy that could work to bring about the end of the war? Or is it a, um, a more kind of mass emotional response to the kind of horrors of war and specifically what's happening in, in Ukraine? Um, the Ukrainian government has uh, very visibly submitted a an application for the rapid entrance into the European Union and entrance to the European Union it, never rapid. Um, but the president of the Commission, um, van der Leyen, seemed open to it. Right? Said they're they're European. If they want to be part of the EU, they should be part of the EU, which is a a massive change from the kind of doldrums of the enlargement process where even countries that are much closer to joining the EU didn't seem to be moving in that direction. And uh, EU member states have been inconsistent in thinking about uh, greater enlargement and suddenly now Ukraine, which was very much on the outside, um, getting signs that they could move more quickly uh, is really a kind of shocking shift. So that's what I'll say um, in terms of the EU and NATO. Thank you so much, John. And we're going to come back to you in a bit. Um, I want to bring Dr. Colleen Moore back in here. Um, Colleen, can you give us a sense of um, Putin's view of NATO and the European Union? I, well, I'll try. I don't know that anyone can give um, a sense of Putin's view of anything right now. But I do, I mean, I do think that some of the the points that Daniel and John raised um, in terms of, so NATO, yes, NATO was created in 1949 and specifically in response to the um, Soviet blockade of Berlin. Um, and NATO then in, admitted West Germany as a member in 1955. And Khrushchev, who was head of the Soviet Union at that point, wondered what was the point of disarming and dismembering Germany if they were going to let it join NATO. So that's when the Warsaw Pact was created. Um, uh, in response to sort of NATO. So you have these two mirror organizations. Um, obviously, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, even before that, you have the end of the Warsaw Pact. But the continued existence of NATO, then you have to wonder, what is it for? Um, at the Yalta conference in, in February 1945, when the Allies knew Germany was losing, they sort of made plans to rebuild Europe peacefully, um, in contrast to what they did after World War one, and they decided to divide it really along the Elba River, where the Soviet Union was responsible for rebuilding everything of the east of the Elba and Britain and the United States were responsible for the west. And NATO was meant to keep that border, right, to make sure that the Soviet Union did not expand into the western part and then the Warsaw Pact to make sure that Britain and um, and the United States didn't expand into the eastern part. And there was, of course, this, this issue with Greece, um, where Tito was trying to create this larger Balkan federation and involved Greece. And Stalin said, Greece is on the wrong side, right? And, and Stalin and Tito, who was the head of Yugoslavia, had this falling out. But um, the notion that NATO should continue to exist 
against Russia because Russia is the sort of de facto inheritor of the Soviet Union, I, I do sort of have as, as problematic. Um, yes, Russia is the largest of the former Soviet republics and the capital of the Soviet Union is still located in Russia, but Putin um, and Yeltsin to some extent, they did not see themselves as the successors of the Soviet Union. Putin has actually gone to great lengths to, to portray himself as the rightful successor of Nicholas II and everything in between um, as, as sort of an aberration. And I also wonder if Ukraine is Europe, then why is Russia not Europe? Um, Russia was Europe until the Soviet Union was created and the Cold War decided that it was not Europe. Um, and there are also other EU countries that are less democratic looking than Ukraine right now. Um, so perhaps democracy is the standard and not necessarily Europe is the standard, but it seems um, problematic for me to say, for you know, to say, well, Ukraine is Europe, but but not Russia. And I do think um, that you know, there, from Putin's perspective, there needs to at least be this acknowledgement that yes, NATO is intended to stop you, as opposed to um, NATO is 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 to guarantee the peace and security of the world. I think that um, the inclusion of, you know, the Baltic states is, is a different issue for him because um, in, in his version of history, again, the Baltics were never quite as, as much a part of Russia um, as Ukraine was. Um, you know, they were dominated mostly by Germans in the Russian Empire, ethnic Germans. And even in the Soviet Union, they used to joke, well, we're going to the West when they were going to, to Estonia or Latvia. Um, and the Baltics were independent from 1918 to 1940. 40-ish, right? Um, whereas Ukraine had this kind of brief moment of independence, um, but much shorter, only until 1922. So I, I don't, th I think Belarus, for him, he's he's trying to go back to some kind of 17th or 18th century notion of the Russian empire, where the, the other sort of Russian people, the little Russians and the white Russians, which were old names for Ukraine and Belarus respectively, matter in ways that the Poles and the, the, the members of the Baltics do not. Thank you so much for that. Um, Dr. Bernie Kessler, I wonder if we can bring you in here to talk about how the Russian invasion of Ukraine is going to impact regional and international relations more broadly. And what does the war, what does Russia's invasion tell us about the state of international institutions? Sure, I mean, it's really an, an assault on the rules-based international order, right? I mean, that, that's what it is. And if you're looking at Putin's um, sort of mindset, what, what we've as Colleen said, we don't really know what's in his head going on right now, but his main uh, policy has always been to undermine, undermine NATO and undermine Western democracies in the European Union. And I agree, of course, you know, this expansion of the European Union has been sort of, as far as he was concerned, a stalking horse for NATO expansion. But he his, his talking points has always been democracy is overrated, NATO is overrated, right? So if you go back to, you know, the 2016, uh, you know, election, the inter um, Russian intervention um, in, in the US election, we had leading to, you know, really Ukraine and Russia has, over, you know, overshadowed the Trump administration. And now it might also, you know, cast a huge shadow on, on the Biden administration. Um, we had the Mueller report, and then we had, of course, the first impeachment, which basically, you know, Trump withheld his security assistance to Ukraine and asked him to do him a favor uh, to, you know, in his campaign. Um, so that was the first impeachment and the Miller report where we saw this sort of close relationship between Trump uh, and, and Russia. And, and sort of for the last four years, we've seen a very benign attitude by the US administration 
towards Russia. Um, but not only Trump, I mean, if you go back to the end of the Cold War, all US presidents have sort of tried to reach out and engage with Putin. Of course, it's always been the idea that, uh, you know, eventually um, they will incorporate into the world capitalist system and they will become democratic. And of course, that didn't happen, right? Engagement failed. You know, Russia is a de facto mafia state with Putin at, at the top um, and surrounded by, you know, his, his, his allies. Um, so the idea has always been to undermine NATO, under, undermine European Union, and undermine you know democracy. And I don't think that Putin is awfully interested in Republicans and Trump. But, you know, the idea was to cast doubt on the value of democracy, cast doubt on the the the, the value of institutions. I think that this he must have watched the you know the insurrection with great glee when that happened last year. That was sort of something which you know he certainly um, must have favored. Um, so as far as we are concerned, what's happening right now is that, you know, Russia launched a war of aggression against Ukraine. I think there's, uh, you know, I think Europeans in particular are to blame for failing to have had proper deterrence. Of course, as we know, that Ukraine is not part of NATO, so there's no, uh, you know, treaty obligation. But sort of Putin got away with stuff, right? He got away in 2008 with Georgia. He got away with the Crimea. Uh, in fact, you know, there was no isolation of Russia. In fact, you know, somehow he, um, the foreign secretary was invited at the Munich conference after the takeover of Crimea. Um, and of course, uh, Ukrainians have been fighting Russian separatists and, and militias in the eastern part of Ukraine since 2014. And, you know, right now, Europeans all of a sudden, like Bush war, Europeans like me, oh, no, we are at war, Europe is at war. But, you know, Ukrainians have been fighting a war for six years and the rest of us Euros have been sort of watching. Um, and sort of this is a big wake-up call to what the ultimate goal is. And I, I, I agree with Colleen here. I think he wants sort of this, you know, this Russian empire, you know, re-establish the Russian empire. Sort of Ukraine got away, right? Ukraine is the country that got away. Um, and again, we can't sort of, you know, speculate of what happens. But, you know, historically, we can look at, you know, incidents like that. And we have sort of an offense dominance. So in fact, if you look at the military balance, you know, the, the Russian military forces, of course, are far superior to the Ukrainian. And then sort of, in particular, if the congruent states and leaders often misjudge that, you know, they look at the balance at their superiority in terms of offense capabilities, and then look at sort of the defensive capabilities of the, of the neighboring country. And that is very tempting for them. And I think that's what happened with Putin. He got tempted. And much to the dismay of the Ukrainians, you know, they've been cursed with, with a neighbor who, who was, you know, there was temptation and there was fear and that made that made that neighbor aggression, aggressive. So I think that could have been what happened. Um, and, and right now what we see is that, you know, we are in a new chapter um, that the West, the US, and we've seen that how dependent the Europeans are still on the Americans when it comes to military security, uh, anything short of isolating Russia uh, is a form of appeasement. Uh, all of this comes at great cost. All of this comes at a great cost to Ukrainians. Uh, I think what we're seeing right now is, you know, you know, um, Russia is implementing sort of a strategy of hurting, sort of the power to hurt. Uh, and we have not seen that yet because, you know, once Russia unleashes its military might on Ukrainians, um, I don't know how long Ukrainians can withhold that. And there's a threshold of pain in any conflict. And once this threshold of pain is met, um, you know, there will, people will surrender, or people want to negotiate. Um, and 
that is something which is very concerning in terms of human security in Ukraine. Uh, it, it, it will be very, very bloody. It will be very destructive. Uh, it will be very deadly for Ukrainians. Um, and as much as Europeans are sending military assistance, which is very good, this is a very long-term approach. We call this bloodletting or bait and bleed in international relations, where you know it's it's not really war by proxy, but you make it very difficult for the Russians in that case uh, to occupy that space. You know they will face militias, they will engage in insurgency against the Russians, aided by you know high-tech weapons. Again, all of this is possible, but we are talking hundreds of thousands of potentially uh, dead Ukrainians. We've had, we haven't had that. We haven't had thousands of dead Ukrainians yet, right? So this is something which is very uh, important to highlight that you know Russia is sort of engaging and em employing this power to hurt right now, and it's pain and violence the Russians are employing, um, and and um, it's the Ukrainians who are bleeding still since 2014, really. Uh, but now I think Europe is woken up. I think for the longest time, Europeans have sort of closed their eyes and hoping that they should go away now. And now they realize they have to have their eyes open. Bernie, thank you so much for raising, especially the specter of the human costs on this. Um, one of the things that struck me, um, some colleagues from the Kiev School of Economics have been doing discussions um, at night, and they've noted that um, they and also um, uh, administrators within the government are are actually documenting the lives uh, and and costs in real time already being inflicted. Um, and I think that's sort of remarkable thinking about this um, from an international uh, from the cost of war standpoint. I'm not sure that we've really seen something like that before, where um, you know violence being perpetrated on a country. Um, you know, that you can really document those costs in real time. Um, and, and I wonder if that, um, you know, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that and, and how that could potentially um, help the Ukraine. Um, so I think, I mean, one, Ukraine, of course, has already gone to the International Court of Justice and they will rule that it was a war of aggression, in which case the Russians will have to pay reparations. Right? I mean, that's that's how it is. And then, of course, the U.S. has been asked to pay reparations, you know, under Reagan, Iran Contra, and they've ignored it. And of course, all of this is, is Russia is a great power, right? That's why, why it's so different. It's not Syria. It's not Iran. It's not, um, you know, Iraq. It's a nuclear weapons power. That's why everybody is on the edge, partly because, you know, Putin has already threatened and uh, insinuated that they have these weapons and that he might be using, uh, he might be willing to use them. Um, right now, what's happening at the UN, of course, the, the UN Security Council is paralyzed. You know, not only is Russia, you know, a permanent member, but it's also actually chairing the UN Security Council right now. Um, I think what we see a uniting for peace uh, resolution in the General Assembly. That has only happened like, I think, 10 times since, you know, in the last 70 years. Um, I think that could establish a sort of fact-finding mission, a special envoy uh, on Ukraine. Uh, um, then where they will monitor and uh, report all of the, uh, the war crimes um, committed by both sides. If, if, you know, I mean, that's we're looking at the fog of war. We don't know who is doing what right now. That, that's, that's war. It's awful. Um, I think we have a special envoy and we have, they will put in a certain mechanism. And of course they can, you know, we still have article 51 of the UN charter, which is collective self-defense. Uh, you know, resolution could still ask, uh, um, very unlikely, but it's of course theoretically possible uh, that they will ask uh, for the UN to intervene and, and give the UN a mandate, 
in this case would be NATO uh, or other international force uh, to come to the aid of Ukraine. Again, it's very unlikely, but theoretically possible. But we will see a few mechanisms laid out in that uh, Uniting for Peace resolution, mainly because the UN Security Council is, is paralyzed. But all of this, again, is important. Everything is happening right now isn't within the parameters of we have a nuclear weapons power launched a war of aggression against another country. Thank you so much, Bernie. Um, Daniel, I want to come back to you. Um, uh, we've already heard that there are uh, over a half a million uh, refugees at this point. I wonder if you can speak some speak additionally to the humanitarian consequences of the Russian invasion um, and how forced migration might impact Ukrainians, but also the countries to which they might seek refuge. Sure. Um, so I actually, I think I would start by noting that, you know, the Ukraine has been in a war for eight years in eastern Ukraine over the Donbass region. Um, it's, it's been a, it's extracted a heavy toll. Um, you know, estimates vary in terms of how many people have been displaced by that, uh, by that conflict, but the Ukrainian government has registered nearly 1.5 million. Um, so we have IDPs, as they're known, right, already existing in Ukraine. Uh, UNHCR says there are almost 3 million people in need of humanitarian assistance prior to the invasion of Russia because of this ongoing conflict. Um, and now, you know, in the span of a week, we have the last estimate I saw was actually 660,000 refugees across the borders of Ukraine into neighboring countries in Europe, uh, most especially Poland. Uh, there's a strong historical relationship between Poland and Ukraine and many Ukrainians already living in Poland. Um, so I would, I think about half of those have, have actually gone directly to Poland, but there's been uh, significant waves of refugees to uh, to Hungary, as well as Slovakia and Romania, uh, and to a lesser degree, Moldova, uh, all on the borders of Ukraine. Um, and I think those numbers are likely to grow um, in the coming days. That is a huge number of people in a very short period of time. Um, I mean, prior to, you know, looking at notes this morning, preparing for this, the number was 500,000, and now it's 660, right? Um, it's just, a, it's an astounding uh, scale and speed. Um, you know, this is this. So this is coming uh, after a, a, you know, eight years of fighting and, and hardship um, in eastern Ukraine. I think depending on how the war goes, if there is a prolonged conflict or, um, you know, a, pro a prolonged insurgency, because I think the, the in my estimation, you know, if if Russia uh, takes Kiev and even installs some sort of puppet government, um, you know, the Ukrainian people are not going to simply accept, you know, Russian dominion and and lie down and, and say, OK, we're, you know, we're under your control now. I mean, there is likely to be a very long, bloody insurgency. So in terms of humanitarian consequences, I mean, it, it's going to be hell um, on the ground in, in Ukraine for, you know, the foreseeable future. Um, and I think that means that this displacement crisis, which might look temporary right now, is going to become a much more prolonged situation. And that comes at a time when the global refugee system is already at a breaking point. Um, I mean, the numbers are, are absolutely staggering. You know, since the time we've been recording these figures after World War II, we have more refugees in the world right now than at any other point. Um, you know, Europe has been in the midst of a refugee crisis for at least seven or eight years. Um, you know, particularly uh, migrants coming across the Mediterranean, but they're, but they're coming from really all sides. And there's been a lot of um, political conflict inside Europe about how to handle that situation. Um, and one of the really striking things in my mind is the, uh, the disparity, frankly, in the reception of Ukrainian refugees 
uh, versus other uh, asylum seekers and refugees um, from other regions of the world, right? Um, I, I, I will say, you know, Poland, Romania, Hungary, um, these countries have opened their borders. They've said Ukrainians are welcome. In Poland, uh, identification documents are not even needed. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, setting up free train rides. There are civic organizations that are coming up to, to help with clothing and food and shelter and transportation. And, and frankly, I think this is how the refugee system should work. You know, it, 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 there are neighbors in need. We have a place. We have refuge for you. Um, but it, it is, it's hard not to compare this to, um, you know, the, the ongoing global refugee crisis and the way in which these very same countries have said, our borders are closed. We don't need any more refugees. We don't want them. They're not welcome here. We've even started to see reports now of, uh, of, of African and, uh, and Asian refugees being treated differently at the border um, and not, you know, just welcomed in with open arms in the same way that Ukrainians are. Um, so, so, I mean, I would say one more thing um, as far as humanitarian consequences. The, the you know, Western alliance of countries has imposed an incredible, incredibly swift array of sanctions, something that we haven't seen, you know, in our lifetimes. Um, and it, it's pretty clear that it's starting to hurt in Russia. Um, you know, the ruble has tanked, the stock market had to be closed entirely yesterday. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot of... Um, there's an effect here. And, and I think that the danger always with sanctions is not just that it may harm, you know, Europeans or Americans or, or others in the world, but that you you are pushing Putin into a corner, right? And and I think that, um, you know, he's shown himself capable of some pretty awful stuff, frankly. Um, if we look at, you know, war in Chechnya, what Russians have been doing in Syria and elsewhere. And, um, you know, just today we heard reports of uh, cluster munitions in Kharkiv, um, so these are, you know, indiscriminate killing machines, right? These are bombs that drop and just scatter shrapnel everywhere. Um, you know, I'm frankly concerned about the use of chemical weapons, uh, biological weapons. Um, you know, anything short of nuclear escalation, I think is probably on the table. Uh, I hope that's not true. Um, but I think that, you know, Putin needs a victory when he has, he has put so much on the table here. Um, and I think that the stakes uh, and, and the kind of fighting we're likely to see is, is, is going to escalate. Thank you so much, Daniel, for that, and especially for calling attention to the fact that there is different treatment for those seeking um, refuge um, and those who are able to leave the country versus those who are being held within. Um, and I know there's also been issues with young men um, who might need to be conscripted, not being able to get out. Um, but Nigerian, there's been reports of Nigerian students not being able to leave as well. Um, so thank you for calling our attention to that, as well as to um, the humanitarian cost of the sanctions within Russia. And I think it's always really important to make a distinction between leaders and governments and the people of a country. Um, we've seen massive um, mass protests um, uh, coming from Russia as well. Colleen, I wonder if we can bring you back in here to talk about um, what you've seen in terms of Russian public opinion of the invasion. Yes, yes, of course. So uh, first, I think it's it's important to remind everyone that Russians do not have civil liberties, right? They don't, you know, despite what might be in, in the constitution, they do not have freedom of speech or assembly or protest. Um, there's also no political opposition. It's all been, it's all in jail or been poisoned. So the, it's very hard for, um, to organize kind of a, a sort of public protest response. Also almost all media 
even social media is state controlled. So if Kontakti, which is the Russian version of Facebook, is state controlled, um, Echo Moskvi, which was uh, the the last independent radio station, went offline a couple hours ago, and I don't they they were still on Twitter. I don't know if they still are. So the fact that we're seeing any anti-war protests um, over the past few days, in uh, last I heard over 30 Russian cities, um, and in some places like St. Petersburg, multiple days in a row. I mean, it's it's a huge development. Um, I haven't been able to to see exact figures to find out if these protests, um, in terms of size and scale, uh, are are greater than the ones in 2011. Um, which were in response to sort of election fraud. And and the ones in 2011 were the largest ones since the 1990s. But Putin um, has become a lot more authoritarian in in the last 10, 11 years, right, since since 2011. Um, I heard yesterday on BBC Radio that 6,000 Russian protesters have been arrested so far, um, which is also an enormous, enormous number. Um, And I think that Russia has the capabilities to arrest you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if they so should choose. Um, but given the fact that there's there's kind of not this this freedom of speech and assembly, you know, we should be aware of of how protests might look very different in Russia than it does in, for example, the United States. Um, in the West, I think we often associate silence with complicity or assent. Uh, but in a country like Russia, silence can imply disapproval or, or even a form of resistance. Um, the fact that if you scroll through Contacti on social media, you don't see Russians openly supporting um, the government's actions. You don't see them echoing this narrative of special military operations as opposed to a war and an invasion. Um, they're not they're not praising Russia, the Russian army and social media um, suggests that they they are opposed. Right. So the, the silence in this case, I mean, it can be read as, as fear of retaliation if they say something, but by, by sort of not going along with it and condoning it, they're also they're also objecting to it. Also, certain celebrities, artists, intellectuals and cultural institutions have been more vocal in their condemnation. Obviously, Russians who reside outside Russia have been very vocal. Um, but even within, for example, there's a Russian blogger named Yuri Dud, I think. Um, he has nearly five million followers on Instagram. And yesterday he posted photos of bombed out Ukrainian apartment building um, and then pointed out inconsistencies and inaccuracies in Russian official statements and called for an immediate end to the war. Also yesterday, the state Tretikov Gallery in Moscow, which is the world's leading um, museum of Russian fine art, posted on Instagram a photo showing um, Vershagin's painting, The Apotheosis of War from 1871. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it's basically like a pyramid of skulls on, in sort of a desert background. And it was painted to protest um, the Tsarist Empire's brutal conquest of Central Asia. And initially, when, when it came out in the 1870s, it, it provoked um, sort of widespread uh, debate and condemnation. Um, but the uh, the Tretikov gallery posted a picture of a what, maybe like a docent or someone standing in front of this painting. It's in black and white. And then the text that accompanied the post read um, in Russian, but it read, in these days, we, like everyone, are attentively and anxiously following unfolding events to which no one can remain indifferent. And that statement, um, you know, by a state organization and one that has international reputation is really powerful. Thank you so much for for sharing that, Colleen. 
Um, John, I want to come back to you. Looking forward, um, what do you see, um, you know, given your, your expertise studying post-conflict societies, um, how should we be thinking about and looking at the long-term impacts of, of, con- of this conflict, um, both on Ukrainian society and government governance, but also perhaps more broadly within Europe? So I'm most informed by you know, my area expertise is not is not Ukraine and Russia, but the Balkans and in particular Bosnia. So I'm most informed by my experience living in Bosnia more than a decade after the end of the war. Dr. Beers actually came to visit me while I was while I was living there, um, <laughs> but uh, you know at the time that I lived there in 2007 and 2008, the damage from the war was still plainly visible. It was we're looking 12, 13 years after the end of the siege in in Sarajevo, and uh, I was living in Sarajevo, and the damage was plainly visible and destroyed and not yet reconstructed buildings, maimed men and women, incomplete families, and patterns of life that had been kind of uprooted from before the war, but new patterns of life that were rooted in war experience and how people survived that continued already at that point, a decade after the war, and in some ways uh, continue still today. You know, the, the buildings have almost all been rebuilt now. We're almost 15 years beyond when I initially started going there. Um, But the impacts of ethnic cleansing are written on the map and the kind of patterns of conflict that are, were rooted in the war are still a major part of life and politics in the country. And so you know, the, the human and societal and governance impacts of, of what we're seeing in Ukraine are going to be with us for decades. And the only thing that war is really good at is creating victims, and they're going to be victims all over the place. Uh, and of course, most visibly, we see, we think of civilians, uh, Ukrainian civilians in the cities that are under attack and look to be soon under siege. Um, but, you know, I, we also think of the soldiers frankly, fighting on both sides. We were, we're seeing, you know, the conscripts in the Russian army <laughs> don't even seem to know they're in an invasion until they are, right? And 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 the, and the implementa- implications of the sanctions that we're going to see um, in Russia and, and, and the connections that go beyond that. So it, the war creates victims and, and we're, there's some focus on heroes in a lot of what we're seeing in the media, but that's, that's not the main thing that's going to be created. Um, I, I, there it looks to be there are th- already thousands of dead and wounded and and hundreds of thousands who fled as Dr. Beers talked about and it really seems that the fighting has only started and the longer it continues the more who will be affected and the more intensely uh, they'll be affected um, I see a lot of kind of eerie and frankly terrifying similarities to the war in Yugoslavia starting with the imbalanced nature of the war um, where the in this case the Russian military is clearly dominant and um, despite the I would say unexpected and kind of um, unexpected showing on the part of Ukraine uh, we have every reason to believe that that what we have seen is only going to get much much worse um, but also just uh, these gorgeous cities with a mixture of older and kind of communist architecture now battlefields um, and uh, not only the buildings destroyed, but the people's lives that take place in them and around them as well. Um, I'm, I'm concerned about 
it, what apparently the increased use of paramilitaries. This is something that we saw beginning in the war in Croatia and then carried over into Bosnia, whereby the Constrict Army, the Yugoslav National Army, basically refused to fight at some point. And uh, we're seeing some indications there that that some parts of the Russian army are not willing to fight, but also the importation of paramilitaries, uh, including from Chechnya. Um, those kinds of paramilitaries were the worst um, makers of atrocity in Croatia and Bosnia. And that's something I think to watch um, as this war kind of changes and develops if it, if it doesn't end. Um, so, you know, I, I think the, in, in terms of kind of specific predictions, a, a lot depends on the, um, how things go forward, right? And, and you know, if we're at this point, a kind of dream scenario is that um, Putin shifts his objectives to only uh, carving off Eastern Ukraine, right? Um, which which could bring us back to something closer to a status quo ante um, and and a per, presumably relatively quick resolution, right? As a, um, I think one thing to keep in mind is the threat from Putin and Russia cannot be prevented or eliminated entirely. As a nuclear power, there the the kind of defeat that would that we could imagine if the entirety of Ukraine joined the EU just seems impossible. And, and as a result, we are going to have to start thinking about, well, what are the kinds of scenarios that are, um, that we can be brought about. And so if, if the, the scenario where only Eastern Ukraine is, is carved off, is brought about that would bring its own set of challenges in terms of managing the relationship, um, thinking about um, a new structure for Ukraine. Uh, we've, we have examples of that already in the Minsk one and two agreements, but uh, obviously that didn't quite hold. And, and so it, that would be one kind of scenario. Another scenario is if we, if we have the long war we may have um, uh, that, uh, Dr. Beers talk. I think Dr. Beers, you talked about the insurgency possibility, which is um, horrifying in terms of the human cost um, to to everyone involved, uh, which would produce a, a different kind of scenario. So I I won't go into detail on those because we don't we don't really know. But those are the that's what I'm looking for in terms of thinking about what comes next. Thank you, John. Um, it's a really, you've given us some really sobering thoughts um, uh, with regards to the future. And Bernie, I wanna bring you back in here as well. We've already heard um, some members of Congress talking about the United States uh, establishing a no-fly zone um, and the potential for escalation between the United States and, and Russia. Um, I wonder if you can talk about uh, how the Biden administration how the Biden administration might respond and whether or not it has any leverage points um, or options, if any. Non-fly zone sounds nice, but that means going to war with Russia, right? Um, a non-fly zone means to either you take out all the surface-to-air missiles on the ground, if it's a hostile country, in that case, it would be Russian forces, controlled territories, and you would have to shoot down any Russian airplanes in order to have air supremacy. So. Um, I don't think we'll see a non-fly zone because that means the U.S. would be or whoever NATO would be going to war with Russia. And that won't happen. 
Um, I, I think, I mean, the thing about tonight, tonight we'll learn uh, the State of the Union address of what Biden is doing or what he's proposing. And, you know, um, politics should always stop at the water's edge, but of course it doesn't. And, you know, foreign policy is political too. So I, I anticipate that he's sort of, you know, linking it to his legislative agenda and looking at energy independence, energy security, Green New Deal, uh, BBB. As, as, a, as a way to say we need to have that in order to be uh, less dependent on foreign countries and be truly self-reliant. So I, I anticipate that we will see some of that. It could be a Jimmy Carter moment for Biden. His, his, you know, his uh, approval ratings are pretty low. Or it could be a George W. Bush moment after 9-11 for, for, for Biden. Who, who knows? We'll see. America is highly polarized. Um, um, as we have more punitive sanctions against Russia, they also come with a cost. And, you know, as we see more um, uh, gas prices going up, I think American. I think that's the extent of America's solidarity of most American solidarity with, with foreign countries. You know, all everything here is built around cheap, abundant energy, and uh, you know, and that, that's usually gas prices. Um, I think the important thing is Biden called him a pariah. That's a big deal. You know, so we are, that's, we are in a de facto Cold War with Russia. Um, I, I don't think, or I sh Biden will not, I should not allow him back into the fray. I think Biden ought to isolate uh, Putin diplomatically and politically, economically, of course, it's happening. Uh, you know, ideally, of course, Biden, uh, sorry, Putin resigns. Uh, he's being isolated um, back home, like even authoritarian leaders like Putin, you know, governed by coalition. So at one point, you know, he will, uh, you know, face uh, resistance, uh, you know, even in his own circle, and he might be forced to, to uh, abdicate. Um, uh, unlikely, but potential, right? I mean, that's all. It's all about, you know, isolating uh, um, the, the Putin regime and his allies um, um, politically and economically. Um, I think what one thing which is difficult, it's because we're talking about a great power conflict now. So I mentioned before, it's not Syria, Iraq. We have a nuclear weapons power, and Putin has done stuff which is really scary. And, and you know, previously, I mean, look at 2006 when there was a, a KGB defector. He, you know, he was poisoned with polonium. He basically became a walking dirty bomb in parts of London. The entire hospital had to be quarantined off because everything he touched was became radioactive. Um, 2018, there was in, in, in Salisbury in the UK too, you know, a, another intelligence defector and his daughter were poisoned with a nerve agent and actually also killed two uh, Brits at the time. Um, so we've seen this, you know, Putin has this sort of Soviet era dirty bag of tricks, which, which he's doing. Right now we have Russian forces which control Chernobyl. Um, you know, an incident could be blamed on Ukrainian nationalists. So there's all sorts of things how all of this could go out of control um, and be looking at nuclear uh, um, nuclear options. Um, so, you know, we are seeing sort of a period of brinkmanship between the US and, and Russia and historically in this sort of nuclear standoff, nobody's rushing into stuff. Nobody's going and running into escalating it because we want to give the other power sort of room to retreat. But of course, the best case was, you know, historical was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we're not quite there yet, but it's important to highlight that we are do dealing with great power rivalry between two or more nuclear powers. Um, so um, I see 
I think the writing on the wall is that the West will support Ukrainians. Uh, Ukrainians will drag Russians in, into a bloody, uh, you know, insurgency. Um, and that sort of bloodletting is awfully costly and, and awfully deadly for Ukrainians. They will pay the heavy price for that. And of course, Ru Russian conscripts, who, you know, all of us know they don't want to be there. Uh, it all comes down to also what Putin wants, right? If you want sort of uh, Ukraine fall apart, or as John noted, he, he's going to annex this, the eastern part, perhaps all the way down to Odessa and, you know, gobble this up into, into greater Russia. Um, I think what we see is now he wants to change realities on the ground in Ukraine by means of force. Uh, and then he might be happy to negotiate, um, you know, a new sort of constellation of what Ukraine is. As far as Putin is concerned, he may not get sort of a pro-Russian regime in, uh, in Ukraine, but it might fall into different pieces. It might become a dysfunctional state. Look at Libya, for example. Uh, you know, so that he could probably live with that. It keeps uh, Ukraine weak, fragmented and helpless uh, and would not pose a threat uh, to Russia. Um, so all of these scenarios are very, very awful for Ukrainians and came at a, come at a huge cost for Ukrainians and the Russian forces who evidently don't want to be uh, to be there. Thank you, Bernie. And I see that Colleen wants to um, also speak to this question. Um, and I also want to bring in a question that we have received from um, those tuning in on YouTube. Um, Dr. Keith Grant, who's in political science, um, our colleague in political science, asks if um, you could also comment on the timing and why Putin is, has chosen this time as opposed to six months ago. Um, or why he might not have um, waited to have more leverage once Nord Stream 2 is online or the U.S. midterm. So I want to add that into the mix of, of this particular conversation. Um, I, yeah, I just want to oh, I want to say something about sanctions, but I also want to address something that Bernie said about a Soviet bag of tricks. Um, and, and just to point out that we should not underestimate the U.S. or the West. We also have our own bag of tricks. And I don't think that there's anything particularly Soviet Again, I, um, about what Putin is doing, um, I don't want to create this kind of Zonderweg argument that this is some unique result of Russian history. I think this is much more of a, a sort of modern late 20th, early 21st century problem. Um, but I wanted to speak to the sanctions um, because uh, this has been primarily the response of, of the United States and, and also European countries. And, it, and it's the, the go-to response, right, of the United Nations. Um, they tried to sanction Mussolini when he was going to invade Ethiopia. Um, but we know, we now know that sanctions do not tend to hurt the leaders of countries, right? Putin personally is not going to suffer. He's not going to not have food on the table. And for years, he's been making moves to sort of divest the Russian economy um, from, from dependency on the West and, and sort of anticipating that this might happen. Um, even when you see lines of, of people in Moscow in line at the, the Bankomat, the ATM, um, taking out money, I mean, those are people who have money to lose. The majority of Russians live paycheck to paycheck. Um, they barely make enough to make um, to pay their rent and buy their food. And the sanctions, therefore, have the potential of actually, and we've, we've, we've seen this in Iraq, um, of actually uniting Russian sentiment against the West and against um, United States and actually binding them closer to Putin in a sense of kind of shared suffering, right? And so I think at this moment, there's enough um, information getting through, especially on social media. I mean, Zelensky has been doing a great job addressing the audience in Russian, 
Um, and there's enough to cast doubts. But if, you know, if the sanctions have the desired effect and go on too long and punish ordinary Russians, which is what tends to happen. I mean, the idea behind them is, well, the Russians would be so miserable that they would vote Putin out. But that's, of course, assuming that Russians have the right to vote and Putin would leave. Um, and and they don't and he won't. So I, I am concerned about about the role of sanctions in this in this situation and that they might actually bind um, Putin and people closer together um, against against the West. I, I can't answer the question on the timing, Kevin, although I or Keith, excuse me. Although I, I heard something about they wanted to wait until that Putin wanted to wait until Biden got troops out of Afghanistan. I don't know if that's true, but I heard that um, you know on either BBC or CNN. So that's all I can say about that. Thank you all again so much for joining us. And uh, you know certainly this is uh, not going to go away anytime soon, unfortunately. Um, so we will try to continue to follow up and, and hopefully bring you all back um, in the future, along with some voices, hopefully directly from Ukraine uh, and, and or Russia. So thank you again for spending the time this afternoon and for sharing your expertise with us. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Leia Surabell, a Democracy Fellow at JMU Civic, majoring in anthropology. Randy Budnickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.